Welcome back to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of national security threats facing liberal democracies. And here's from some of the most innovative people at the forefront of, of tackling those threats. And a special welcome to our new listeners. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Well, the Ever Given has been unmoored from the Suez Canal, and now two months later, world shipping has mostly overcome the delays that the Ever Given caused while it was stuck. But as we all learned during that week of spectacle in the Suez Canal, the disruptions to the shipping supply chain extend far beyond the original ship that's delayed. In the case of the Ever Given, dozens of mega freighters were delayed as a result of, of the Ever Given blocking the Suez Canal, which meant that they couldn't arrive in time to unload and to load new cargo. And as a result, other vessels were affected too. And if I may add, around 200,000 live animals are estimated to have been on those delayed freighters. And as yet, it is unclear what happened to them. But suffice it to say that most freighters don't have enough food for their live animals that they're transporting, not enough food for another seven days or so. So another result of, of that delay in the Suez Canal. And incidentally, at the moment, the Ever Given is going nowhere because it has been seized by the Suez Canal Authority, which wants a payment of close to $1 billion from the Ever Given's owner, which is a Japanese company, and that, that company is refusing to pay. And all of this, of course, highlights the incredible vulnerabilities of global supply chains and global shipping in particular, not just with regards to one particular vessel blocking a canal here or there, but there are lots of other vulnerabilities. And the thing is that we as ordinary citizens don't see those vulnerabilities because shipping is a highly efficient sector and it doesn't look vulnerable because it is so incredibly well organized, but the vulnerabilities are there. And global consumers and companies alike would do well to think about what would happen in case of more disruptions and more extensive disruptions than those caused by the ever given. Now, incidentally, Iran and Israel are engaged in what one might call a proxy conflict that involves missiles and explosions and civilian freighters. With me to discuss these phenomenally important issues are two outstanding maritime experts, Cormac McGarry from Control Risks and Simon Lockwood from Willis House Watson. Both know every nook and cranny of global shipping, and I'm thrilled that we got them both here on the CASP. Thank you, Elizabeth. Now, I want to start with where I ended, which is the vulnerability aspect in the shipping sector. And it's not just uh, vulnerabilities relating to what countries could do to other countries' uh, ships, but it's also relating to the size of ships, to mishaps in narrow waters, and to the proxy conflicts I mentioned. So if we start with with you, Cormac, what are the biggest vulnerabilities in, in the shipping sector and where are they most likely to occur? Well, Elizabeth, I, I'm, I'm a risk management specialist particularly specializing in security. So I tend to look at that side of the world. Indeed, there's day-to-day, maybe year-to-year disturbances that we can talk about that perhaps more in the immediate future. But what the Suez Canal blockage by the Ever Given showed us was really showed the rest of the world was something that those of us in the maritime community have known for a long time, which is that the, the key vulnerability in shipping to the rest of the world is how reliant we all are on shipping and then within shipping some key vulnerabilities that really risk that reliance 
And the Suez Canal is a perfect example of only a handful of choke points or bottlenecks in the world. You know, you've the Suez Canal, you've the English Straits, the Malacca Straits, the Panama Canal, among more. If there's any serious shutdown of these straits and passageways, that causes significant disturbance to the rest of us, to the world. And it's approximately 80% of trade, physical trade, is reliant on shipping to be moved around the world. So what we saw with the Ever Given was really just a microcosm, one ship getting stuck, as, well, as, as big a, a, of a physical issue as it was. It shut down the Suez Canal effectively for a short period of time. But we need to kind of look at what are the kind of issues that, that could occur that could lead to, let's say, the Suez Canal being shut down indefinitely. And indeed, that, that's happened before. It's happened historically. We can talk about that. But I mean, there's, there's nothing to say that that won't happen again. And we, we deal with it. You know, I mean, the world deals with these things and, and, and shipping is extraordinarily good at adjusting to realities. It's, it's a logistical champion, the shipping industry. Yeah, we need to look at other straits and and think what are the issues that could occur that could cause indefinite shutdowns and could happen in more than one strait. And Simon, what are those issues? Should we be concerned mostly about mishaps, including blockages of canals or uh, ships simply being too large to comfortably navigate the world's canals and, 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 and ports? Or should we be more concerned about countries, hostile governments, deciding that hmm, this is a pretty good target if you want to cause trouble or cause harm to another country or possibly many other countries. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really good it's a really good point, Elizabeth. And there's probably no surprise we we're talking about this one given the press that was given to the Ever Given, but the fact that the Ever Given was a you know was a you know was a six day incident that that everybody was talking about actually detracts from from a the, the size and the scope and the scope of, of, of the shipping industry but actually it, it's, it's perhaps forced people to focus on something that actually isn't the key point and I think the second you know, the the other direction you're pointing at is was, was really uh, and, and and very much falls into into Cormac's world as well is the vulnerabilities around those pinch points that actually aren't sort of technology driven but actually if you look at areas like the Straits of Hormuz you mentioned the proxy war that's you know, potentially going on at the moment. You know, within within that part of the world, actually, sort of coming out of Suez into the into the Red Sea and the area around uh, around Yemen, particularly, you know, politically a very sensitive sensitive area, areas around Gulf of you know Gulf of Guinea and the, and the ever increasing sort of incidents of, of of piracy in those sort of areas as well. So, so I, I think this has a lot more to do with the ability of nations, rogue nations, or whoever they are, or or groups of politically motivated people. To create those pinch points, rather more so than a big ship that got stuck for six days. Yeah, and I think we've all played battleship in in our youth or childhood, and and we know how easy it is to to find and disable a large ship compared to a small ship. And, and ships are getting bigger, and at the moment, the largest ones carry a bit more than twenty thousand containers, but they are growing with no end in sight. And so, Cormac, if I can turn to you again, what does it mean that a country's interest in, in harming other countries with means short of war, that that interest is increasing at the same time as the size of mega freighters is increasing? Doesn't it make global shipping incredibly vulnerable, global shipping and by extension, us consumers and, and everybody really in our countries? Indeed it does, Elizabeth. And in the 1967 war that Egypt shut down the Suez Canal, 
and that caused major, major disruption to those that relied on it. it resulted in years of economic damage as a result of that one canal being shut down. And that was in a, that was 1967 and the years afterwards. Shipping has grown monumentally bigger in terms of volume as well as individual ship size since then. And that means that if you wanted to cause harm to, to another country, you could sabotage or block a couple of mega freighters and a lot of essential items would be delayed, even if, if the country would be able to, to get them from elsewhere eventually. In, indeed. And, and countries, governments, threat actors, whatever you want to call them, are, are very aware of this. And that's why we see, for example, in the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman over the last two years, there's a number of attacks committed primarily against tankers carrying oil and gas out of the, the Gulf region. And those attacks have been almost certainly committed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, not as a means to shut down the route, but as a means to kind of remind their adversaries that they may use that shutdown tool if it comes to it and use that as a means to play into the kind of regional geopolitical tensions and negotiations that occur around that. So it's just a microcosm. A country like Iran or an organization like the IRGC willing to just show a little taste of what it could do to crucial shipping routes if things were to escalate. Yeah, powerful signaling that's possible there. Simon, I want to turn to a somewhat different area, ownership and the flag under which ships sail and the nationalities of the crews, because all of this has changed fundamentally in, in the past couple of generations. It used to be that if you were a young British guy, not so many women, and if you didn't want to go to, go to university, often you decided to, to go to sea. You became a seafarer and you had a pretty good career there. And thanks to these British seafarers or Irish seafarers, possibly, we have the famous sea shanties that's back, back in vogue again. But I think it's fair to say that uh, the current seafarers are not singing the sea shanties because they are just come from a completely different part of the world. It's mostly Chinese, Russians, Indians. Filipino seafarers and a couple of other nationalities. And then on the other hand, the ships are owned by companies in a variety of countries and sail under the flag of a variety of yet other countries. So what does that mean for the, the shipping business in, in who is responsible for it and how countries interact with one another if, if neither country really or no country really has, has a particular stake a complete stake in, in the shipping business. And, and again, the sector that is so incredibly vital. Yeah, and I think it's, it is quite easy to sort of get caught up in this evolution of shipping and, how sh- and, and, and layers of ownership and, and, and structures and, and sort of question whether it's, you know, whether, it's, whether it's creating a potential huge problem. Now, I, I will give an example, and it was, it was something that was, was, was told to me. I heard it at a presentation by a gentleman called um, Joe Hughes, the manager of, the, of one of the PI clubs, American PI clubs. He's an ex colleague of mine from many years ago. And he was talking about a, a case, the Sea Empress case from 1996. Now, those in the UK will remember the Sea Empress case because it, there, was a huge, there was a huge spill in Milford Haven, which is a beautiful part of, of, of Wales and, and the Welsh coast. And the, understandably, the environmentalists, the British public, the Welsh government were looking at shipping and saying there is a fundamental problem here because we have a ship that's owned by a Norwegian that's run out of Cyprus and that's managed by a Scottish company that has a Liberian flag 
is an American cargo on board. It was built in Spain. So look, this is the challenge with shipping. Nobody, there's nobody's accountable. Nobody looks at this one. And so, ah, but then Joe sort of raised the point about this one. Actually, if you if you look out the case around the CM Press, the person who was who was ultimately held responsible for this casualty was the pilot, and he was Welsh. So it's it's very difficult. This is one of the things that I feel very strongly about with with shipping as well is that shipping is is an industry that is easily forgotten and then brought to the forefront and demonized. But actually, there there is you know this 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 sort of growth and the globalization of shipping just because there's layers of ownership and and, and different different nationalities. It doesn't mean to say that there isn't accountability and there isn't you know response. The majority of the world's ships are insured. By the international group of PNI clubs for their for their liability insurance. So there's a collective visibility on that. The majority of the world's ships are classified by one of the classification societies that's a member of the international group of classification societies. Again, there is oversight and 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 control from that perspective. Furthermore, the International Maritime Organization, who are responsible for globally for shipping, is a member is a, is a, is a, is a UN UN authority. I'm not to say not to say to try to suggest for one moment that there's, there is that everyone operates to exactly the same standard, and there isn't challenges by the fact that that one flag state is is has less of an oversight than than perhaps another 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 flag state. And also the challenges that have existed in the last 14 months, 14, 16, 16 months since uh, we've had to live in this, this COVID in, in environment and sort of going on to the challenges around, around crew, around inspections, around access to, um, to, to, to facilities and everything else. So I think it's, it's clearly a challenge that the world has, and it is a world, a world problem that's sort of part to, part to one side. But I think it's it's perhaps sometimes oversimplified to say that shipping has this rather murky image that we we hide brass nameplate companies and and flags of and flags of convenience and when the world has created the demand, there's a very good reason why young British men and women don't go to sea anymore because they can probably earn they can sleep in their beds every night and earn a lot more money if they want to stay at home and 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 find a job in 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 another industry in another industry as well and. And so that's pushed, you know, that's pushed a demand, a demand elsewhere. So, but it's a situation that you know, that has to be, you know, constantly checked and constantly managed, and to ensure that actually that the standards don't slip. Because when when they do slip, we have significant significant problems on on there as well. And that's a good reminder to for us all to remember how much we owe to India and the Philippines in particular, because without these two countries, we would not be able to. We would not be getting our, our products that we don't even know are being sent to us every single hour of every single day. And we don't know that they're being sent to us simply because it happens so smoothly. And that's a point that you've both made, Simon and, and Cormac, that, that despite these incredible vulnerabilities, uh, the shipping industry is a, a logistical Rolls Royce that, that functions so smoothly that, that you don't notice the vulnerabilities that are, that are there. I want to finish maybe with a, a rather large question. You don't have to answer it in within the scope of a podcast, but Cormac, it seems to me that we are too dependent on on shipping, and obviously, as long as the shipping industry can supply the service, then it's fine. But but do you think are we are we too dependent on shipping? I would put the question: What's the alternative to moving that quantity of goods around a globalized world? There is nothing other than shipping that can move goods at that scale so efficiently. 
So are we too dependent? I would say no, because there's no alternative. There is no alternative. Simon, are, are we too, too dependent? Maybe we just depend too much on goods from other countries. Maybe globalization has spoiled us to the point where, where we keep expecting goods from, from other countries, including livestock, <laughs> to the tune of several million live animals every single year. Is that really necessary? I'm, I guess I'm suggesting here that, that we return to a less globalized world, but because as Cormac says, at the moment, there is no alternative. So somewhat larger question for you as well, Simon. Uh, yes, and I'm going to yes, I have have views about the shipping of live live animals, but I shall park those. I shall park those now and, and take on the other the other part of it. It is the challenge, you know, that that is demand that is demand creases that, and as we as we sit on our on our phones and 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 expect Amazon to deliver something by tomorrow that you had never realised up until yesterday you couldn't live without, but you have to have tomorrow. The consequences of that one as well. I was watching. Dragon's Den, UK version Dragon Dragon's Den the other day, and and a particular entrepreneur had come on there pitching a, a new idea about a product that they uh, that they wanted to develop. They were asked by the the dragon who was who was contemplating investing in this one as well around production costs, and and they were given a unit price and and whatever the unit price was. So the dragon came back straight away and said, "Let's move it to China. We'll do it for twenty percent of the cost." Well, and that's you know, and that's obviously. For them, great business sense, but there's a consequence of moving that to, to to China at a fraction of the cost as well. Because to get it back to the UK, you need a ship to get there as well. And uh, yeah. it's you know we we are globalization is a you know there's an inevitability of where we are and uh, that that demand demand for you know for, for 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 goods and services. But they got you know how do they what is the reality of that one unless we unless we move backwards in terms of our expectations and and actually be prepared to pay. See perhaps significantly more in in the UK for goods that are produced by a manufacturing sector that actually, quite frankly, doesn't even exist. At, you know, in in lots of areas at the moment, and that is the challenge. But you know, for someone that is very proud of of being part of the shipping community, I'm proud of of what it can deliver. I'm also mindful of the fact that I, I live in a world that that has to make significant changes to to the way that we do deal with things. And the realities of that demand and what it does in terms of the pressure on demand for hydrocarbons, the pressure for alternative sources of propulsion for ships and, and, and the like. And that will be the next podcast that I invite you back to sometime in the future. The increasing need for hydrocarbons and, and other fuels for all these ships that we depend on to, to deliver our goods to us. It's not just the, the fuel that, that powers them, it's, it's the ports in which they load and unload. And, and all these other points of the infrastructure that support them along the way, including things like cranes, that another invisible, uh, to us land dwellers, invisible part of, of the shipping supply chain that could go wrong. And then we would, we would be as, as stuck as we were when the Ever Given ended up sideways in the Suez Canal. So with that, thank you very much, Cormac McGarry. Thank you, Simon Lockwood. Thank you. Thank you very much. As always, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify. And as ever, you can tweet to me at Elizabeth Braun. Many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode, another guest or another two guests who are doing pioneering work. See you on the cast. <laughs>